It's a dark and dusty scene. A group of people gather around a large table. There is little that is immediately beautiful about it, and the figure who first catches your eye is perhaps the ugliest of them all. He wears a tall, patterned crown on his head that serves to further enhance his already prominent largesse over the rest of the people who seem to be at a feast. In the background, seven figures, all of whose faces you can see at least a part of, direct their attention to the dominant man with the crown, who stands at the left. Three figures are in the foreground, with their backs to you. One stands, the other is fat, and the third looks like a child, but is probably just really short. None of their faces can be seen at all. There is a generally jarring nature to the whole scene. Again, you look at the main man, evidently the leader, and by statement of his headwear, a king. You focus on his face, framed by his rough chestnut-coloured beard and the long hair that falls down from within under the crown. At first you think he's winking, or perhaps having a spasm. And then you look more closely, and you realise that he has no left eye, and the harshness of the whole scene magnifies as the scar tissue in the one socket contrasts so starkly with the intensity of the gaze emanating from the lone eye in the other, staring directly at you. His is the only gaze to do so. He holds a sword before him, over the table. It is not the only sword, but it is the biggest. Others around him, those who make up this motley and haggard-looking crew, hold their own swords in a crisscross with him. They are making an oath. They are binding each other to a collective goal. They are about to go into rebellion against the Roman Empire to win their rights to self-rule and determination on lands they call their own. These figures are the leaders of the Batavian tribes, who 2,000 years ago inhabited the lower reach of the Rhine River Delta, part of today's Netherlands. The man with the crown is known as Claudius Civilis, and the scene will become known to history as the Conspiracy of Claudius Civilis. Here, at a secret banquet in a sacred grove, they made an oath to begin what became the Batavian Revolt from 69 to 70 of the Common Era. The main source for the story of the Batavians is Tacitus, the Roman classical historian. Much of his work was rediscovered in Renaissance Italy in the 15th century and distributed around Europe in the 16th. It was consumed heartily by the humanist scholars that began to abound in the post-Renaissance era. Some of the most influential of these were Dutch. The biggest humanist heavyweight of this era, Desiderius Erasmus, was born in Rotterdam, or Gouda, depending on who you ask. Another one, Cornelius Aurelius, was his mate and lived down the road. Humanism made deep roots in the Low Countries. The 16th century was a big century for Europeans, and the people of the lowlands were no exception. The Protestant Reformation and the conversion of many northern European populations to the teachings of Luther and Calvin or otherwise 
led to an increased sense of individualism for the members of these societies. For the people of the Low Countries, ruled for centuries up until now by the Duke of Burgundy, who in the middle of this century also happened to be the King of Spain, they would now also begin a journey towards independence and nationhood, the creation of the Dutch Republic, by going into rebellion in 1568 against Spain, and over 80 years of struggle transforming into an officially recognized and independent republic, as well as, just quietly, the wealthiest country to have ever existed up until then. The Renaissance, humanism, mercantilism, conservatism, Protestantism, imperialism, and liberalism all came together in a big ism stew and cooked in a way that made the 16th century rebellious Dutch and their 17th century kin ready and eager to hear what Tacitus had written about the people who had inhabited their lands over 1500 years before what he had written about those who could now be considered their forebears, those whose lives were the foundational stones for this new nation and this new identity that the 16th and 17th century Dutch were forging. Tacitus tells us how the Batavian Revolt happened within the context of a monumentally world-changing year for Rome, a year known as the Year of the Four Emperors. There are many good books and podcasts out there which cover the tumultuousness of this year, which ended the Julio-Claudian dynasty established by Augustus a century before, really what established Rome as an empire, and the year that also resulted in the beginning of the Flavian dynasty, irrelevantly the first occurrence in this new Rome of a son actually inheriting the imperial throne from his father. It was a crazy year, where all it really took to become the emperor was enough blokes with swords willing to call you the emperor. The Batavian Rebellion would ultimately not succeed, but the weight of its significance would come to some kind of fruition 1500 years after the event, when it gave fortitude to those engaged in the rebellion against Spain, before then a century later also becoming the object of a personal rebellion, this time one of art and social analysis. There's just a lot of rebellion going on. Rebellion all over the place. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me, the podcast about rebellion and resistance in history, art, and culture. This episode is brought to you by the Recorded History Podcast Network. Way, that's right, we've got friends. Turns out it's not just our mums who listen. And we're very proud to say that you can find Stuff What You Tell Me at recordedhistory.net, along with a bunch of other great history podcasts. You will be hearing promos for some of their programs on our show, as well as possibly ads that you can choose to defy with the skip button when the time comes. Of these programs in particular, we want to give a shout out to Dig, a podcast that puts a lot of focus on the history of women's rights which unfortunately has required and still requires different acts of defiance, many of which still go unrecognized today. We are really enjoying the work these historians are doing, so check them out. Dangerous History by Prof CJ is one that many of you might know, but is worth a shout out, because he's all about sticking it to the man, 
And he does it in a way more professorial way than we could ever muster. Another one is the art history babes. Definitely worth a listen. We are going to talk about art today in our usual way of just using brute force and ignorance. These women really know their stuff, and they have a great series on the history of art and of those involved in its undertaking. So check them out. Finally, this episode is also brought to you by Dave, who despite his aspirations of having as much free time as possible, has sacrificed it today so that we can record this podcast. Wait, 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 Julian, Julian, Julian. That, that's an awesome song. And we were using it all for last year. And, you know, I want to thank Detroit Rebellion for letting us use it. But we've got some big changes happening this year. New network, new ideas for incredible stories of rebellion and resistance. How about we, I don't know, make things a little bit more epic this year? From the moment we are born, we are told we must obey. It's a mistake to rebel, treason to defy. Change is a dreaded thing, until it's not. These are the stories of those who disobey and their acts of defiance, world-changing or inconsequential. The characters who forge their own paths and the cycles of change driven by women and men willing to stand up, look authority in the face, and say, stuff you, and stuff what you tell me. That was pretty epic. Nero was the last of the Julio-Claudians. Depending on which sources and analyses you favour, he was a tyrant, or an extravagant performer, or somewhere in between. He's often associated with playing the fiddle during the burning of Rome, feeding lions with Christians, and kicking his pregnant wife to death. He gets a resounding zero on the good bloke scale. Anyway, he raised taxes to pay for public works, and so a governor in Gaul called Gaius Julius Vindex rebelled, with the support of another governor with the wonderful name of Servius Sulpicius Galba, whom Vindex ended up supporting to become the emperor. This whole story is just chock-a-block with guys convinced that their time in the sun has arrived. Like, Like the football player who gets caught in the limelight and kicks for goal instead of passing for the better team play. This is it. This is my moment. Only to gloriously stumble over their own feet, have an air swing and watch vainly as the ball bounces harmlessly over the line for a goal kick. There's a fair amount of this during the year of the four emperors. Except our metaphorical player then also either gets stabbed by his teammates or is on a bound to impale himself on his own sword in a dramatically lit tent somewhere. Vindex's army was rapidly defeated in battle by loyal legions coming from Germania. And actually, I just want to stop here because Germania being the sort of uh, northern reaches of the Roman Empire... You can say Germania or Germania. We didn't know which. We couldn't decide. So we flipped a coin. It's Germania. So these loyal legions coming from Germania's borderlands defeated Vindex's army in battle. And so he promptly slew himself, likely by falling on his own sword in a dramatically lit tent somewhere. 
Galba was declared a public enemy of Rome by the Senate, but soon other military commanders began throwing their weight behind him, most secretly hoping that by doing so, they might get a chance to declare themselves emperor. It was just like modern politics, really, but with more stabbing. Real stabby, the Romans. Just love a good stab. With his support evaporating, Nero made a hasty exit from Rome, only to be denied passage to the eastern provinces by army commanders, who rightfully gave him the proverbial thumbs down. With nowhere to go, he returned to Rome and had a big suki lala by himself in his palace. His mood was then made substantially worse when a messenger arrived, announcing that the Senate had sentenced Nero to death by beating. Sensing that the end had arrived, yeah, you're about to be beaten to death by state sanction, Nero moaned about how the world was losing an artist, and so artistically had his servant stab him in the neck in what was chalked up as a suicide. What a performance. After Nero's death, Galba was declared emperor by the Senate. So in the end, Vindex's revolt was ultimately successful in bringing Galba to the throne. As you might imagine, the armies of Germania, who had quashed Vindex's initial rebellion in support of the Empire, were not particularly stoked when the man whom Vindex had been supporting, Galba, was suddenly two months later declared to be their emperor. I too would be hard-pressed to support Galba, if only given his uncanny likeness to Snoke from Star Wars. Sorry, spoilers. Galba was not particularly happy with the armies in Germania either, seeing their actions defeating Vindex as having been an attempt to block his ascent to the throne. He took revenge against the honour of the local population by dismissing the Batavian cavalry who had traditionally been the elite mounted force in charge of guarding the emperor's life. He then appointed an unpopular man named Vitellius, most well known for his gambling and gluttony, as the new governor of Germania Inferior, Lower Germany. Having seized power after an uprising against unpopular taxes, it was now up to Galba, to sort out the financial problems that plagued the empire. He imposed large fines on towns that had been slow or neglectful in joining his side in the revolt against Nero. He also decided not to pay reward money that had been promised in his name to the Praetorians who helped usher him into power. This will not turn out to be the wisest decision he ever made. The size of the Roman Empire is one of the things that made it such a difficult thing to maintain with stability. Great armies, existing in totally separate regions across this incredibly vast entity, were meant to represent a united display of force, wielded by and loyal to the singular idea of Rome. These armies, however, were really just made up of various different people. First of all, encumbered with all the complications that come from just being a person, but then thrown together in military camps with a bunch of other people, sharing their own version of that burden. They would have come from different backgrounds to each other, and to those making decisions that emanated out in some weird relay fashion 
from the centre of power in Rome. Some of them would have come from the region in which they were based or thereabouts, but some would have come from really far away, from any number of places across this vast empire. They would have all had varying attachments, tribal, ethnic, religious, or whatever, and different ideas about hierarchy and power that were particular to them and to their cultural backgrounds. As news arrived from Rome in this tumultuous year, at speed level horse, of course, they would have received, discussed, debated, and thought about it all in drastically different ways, and reacted accordingly. In particular, each person and group would have thought about how that news affected them, their condition, and, both individually and collectively, their own positions of status and power. This can be said of ordinary soldiers as much as of generals, governors, and senators. For the purposes of our story, it is the armies in Germania, mainly powerful, experienced troops, whose discontent will fertilize the ground in which the seeds of this rebellion shall be sowed. Eventually, on January 1st, 69 of the Common Era, the armies of Germania refused to swear loyalty to Galba, and a day later declared their obese governor-general Vitellius to be emperor. Quickly realizing that he wasn't a very popular man, and that he might not last long, Galba decided to appoint an heir to his throne, a man named Lucius. This act outraged many, some of whom desired the honor for themselves, but especially, it really made a guy called Otho, very cranky. Otho was ambitious and smart, but most importantly, he was also not above a bit of bribery to get people on his side. He promptly paid off the Praetorian Guard, which the Emperor had not, and they promptly met Galba and Lucius in the Forum of Rome and slew them both, bringing his brief reign to an end. Tacitus sums up the reasons Galba was assassinated. Quote, There was a saying of Galba's, to the effect that he was wont to select, not buy his soldiers, an honourable utterance in the interests of the state, but dangerous to himself, for everything else was at variance with such a standard. End quote. In other words, Rome is corrupt, and if you want to maintain power, you'd best adapt to that. On the same day that Galba was stabby McStab stabbed, the Senate recognised Otho as the new emperor. The year 69 was now just over two weeks in, and already Rome was onto its third emperor. So with both Vitellius and Otho claiming to be the emperor of Rome, the situation was understandably tense. Things were made even more tense when Vitellius, who, with the backing of legions from Germania and Britannia, was in a much stronger position militarily, sent half his army down towards Italy to violently negotiate with Otho. Otho's forces went out to meet Vitellius's army in various theatres for this diplomatic dance of death. He enjoyed some minor victories before losing the first Battle of Bedriacum. Following this, Otho was unexpectedly overwhelmed by honour and decided it was fairer for one to die than many. He then 
That's right, stabbed himself in the heart. This left Vitellius as the sole emperor. Otho's contentious rule had lasted just 83 days. Vitellius had brought a lot of troops with him from Germania to Italy, so now that the fighting was over, he sent a bunch of them back to man the border. This included eight units from the Batavian infantry, who had fought well in the Battle of Bedriacum. When a man who is renowned for his gluttony defeats his enemies in battle and becomes emperor, as Vitellius had now done, what is he meant to do to celebrate? He has banquets, of course. A lot of them. In fact, stuff it, this is worth digressing for a second. Just to quote this passage from Suetonius about Vitellius's appetites. Quote, He divided his feast into three, sometimes into four a day, breakfast, luncheon, dinner, and a drinking bout. And he was readily able to do justice to all of them through his habit of taking emetics. Emetics, by the way, vomit-inducing substances, stuff to make you throw up. I'll continue on. Moreover, he had himself invited to each of these meals by different men on the same day, and the materials for any one of them never cost less than 400,000 sesterces. Most notorious of all was the dinner given by his brother to celebrate the emperor's arrival in Rome, at which 2,000 of the choicest fishes and 7,000 birds are said to have been served. He himself eclipsed even this at the dedication of a platter, which, on account of its enormous size, he called the Shield of Minever, Defender of the City. In this, he mingled the livers of pike, the brains of pheasants and peacocks, the tongues of flamingos, gross, and the milt of, I don't even know what milt is, the milt of lampreys, brought by his captains and triremes from the whole empire, from Parthia to the Spanish Strait. Being besides a man of an appetite that was not only boundless, but also regardless of time or decency, he could never refrain, even when he was sacrificing or making a journey, from snatching bits of meat and cakes amid the altars almost from the very fire, and devouring them on the spot, and in the cookshops along the road, viands smoking hot, or even those left over from the day before, and partly consumed. End quote. Well, that answers that old question. Who ate all the pies? That fat bastard. A regular Roman Jabba the Hutt. Mate. Milt is the seminal fluid of fish, mollusks, and certain other water-dwelling animals who reproduce by spraying this fluid which contains sperm onto roe, fish eggs. Oh, man. That's gross. Fishy sperm eggs. Right. Carrying on? I might need a minute. (laughs) Anyway, as he went about eating his empire into bankruptcy, Vitellius began sentencing to death any debtors who came to him asking for repayment. Far out. Look, it's so hard to try and put yourself in someone else's shoes in any situation, let alone one set so long ago. But I'm just imagining this bloke fairly suddenly ascended to an imperial throne during what are 
obviously pretty tumultuous times, as displayed by the fact that three other contenders for your position are now dead, you'd think he'd show a bit of awareness. A bit of awareness for the frailty of his situation. But he's not. Instead, he's just eating pretty much everything he sees, and so then the Roman legions in the Middle East proclaim some other guy called Vespasian as the emperor. And he's now the fourth person to claim the title in the year 69. Obviously, we are viewing Vitellius through Tacitus, who is still living under the rule of the dynasty Vespasian will soon establish. But still, history is fairly well stocked with characters like Vitellius, who just seem to have no clue at all. When news arrived that Vespasian was marching from Judea towards Rome, Vitellius ordered his armies, including those eight Batavian infantry units, back to Italy after they'd just marched from Italy. Imagine having marched just over 750 miles from Italy to Mainz in Germany, only to be told to go back. They wouldn't even have had time to enjoy some Gottes Bratwurst und lecker Leberkuchen. That this all, well, except for the Bratwurst bit, pretty much comes from Tacitus, means we need to keep a few things in mind. It is in his histories that we are told this story. And Tacitus, when he wrote them, was a high-ranking politician as well, and he suffered problems from the emperors under whom he lived. His writing is often critical of the moral condition of Rome's soldiers and officers, it is contemptuous of civil war at all times, and somewhat disparaging of the Roman populace's apathy to, or perhaps even celebration of, the violence therein. In much of his work, he sets opposite each other the noble savage and the decadent civilized Roman. So when we talk of the Batavians, it is through these eyes. The Batavians themselves were people who lived in the lowlands, between the lower Rhine and the Val rivers, and from whose population these eight infantry units that formed part of the force being sent hither and thither between Germany and Italy had been drawn, as well as the elite mounted cavalry, who had been until recently the emperor's personal bodyguards, but whose dismissal by Galba was a slant on all of their people. Of them, Tacitus writes, quote, The Batavians, so long as they lived beyond the Rhine, formed a branch of the Shuti. Driven out by domestic dissension, they occupied the uninhabited riverine fringes of Gaul, together with the island in the lower reaches, washed by the North Sea on the west and on the other three sides by the Rhine. They were not exploited financially, despite the Roman supremacy and their alliance with a stronger power, but contributed only men and arms to the empire. After a long and hard training in the German campaigns, the Batavian cohorts were moved across the channel to Britain, where they added to their laurels, still commanded according to long-standing practice by their own nobles. In the home country, they also had a picked cavalry force, specially trained for amphibious operations. These men were capable of swimming the Rhine while keeping hold of their arms and mounts and maintaining perfect formation. End quote. That is a bloody great way. 
for your cultural reputation to be handed over to history. Sort of like they were these amphibious frog people on horses who were really good at fighting and, did I mention, terrifying. Since they lived in a river delta, they didn't really have natural resources. Well, they would have had peat, fossilized organic compound that is the natural produce of a swamp, but nobody wants to buy peat. The island that Tacitus refers to as well is the Batuva, a name many Dutch will recognize today, as the island is still there and it still carries that name. A lot more caravans today as well. As is often pointed out, the Roman Republic come empire functioned like a massive mafia crime family and made vassals of those under its imperial yoke. If you were a vassal of Rome, you basically paid money or resources to them and in return, they didn't kick the shit out of you and rape and murder all of your people. The Batavians did not have to pay taxes to Rome or give natural resources because, again, nobody wants to buy peat. What they did provide was the only commodity they had, themselves. These were already tall people who carried the sometimes real but always imagined ferocity and terror that Germanic warriors wrought in the hearts and minds of Romans. The elite mounted personal bodyguard of the emperors up until Galba had been Batavian troops. They grew up in harsh conditions, their communities constantly on the precipice of overwhelming flood. Dutch historian Jona Lendering has cited demographic research that has, quote, led to the conclusion that every Batavian family had at least one son in the army, end quote. As troops that included the eight Batavian units that were marching back to Italy were still not enough, in Vitellius's estimation, he ordered the commander of the Rhine army, Marcus Hordionius Flaccus, to send more troops. First of all, Tacitus really doesn't like Flaccus, even though he didn't know him at all. Flaccus is Tacitus's embodiment of this decadent, lazy, civilized Roman, flailing in incompetence against the virtuous struggle of the ultimately doomed barbarians. He says that Flaccus was, quote, incapacitated by age and lameness. He had neither courage nor authority, end quote. Almost certainly Flaccus was more competent than Tacitus gives him credit for. Flaccus would be murdered before the rebellion was ultimately quashed. However, there is a sense of decent command under his general administration once you look past Tacitus's bitchiness. An objective look at his decisions within the context of the civil war erupting throughout the empire shows some fairly arguable astuteness. But moving on. When Flaccus must provide more troops for Vitellius, Tacitus tells us also how that all went down with the locals. Quote, Batavians of military age were being conscripted on the instructions of Vitellius. The levy was by its nature a heavy burden, but it was rendered still more oppressive by the greed and profligacy of the recruiting sergeants, who called up the old and unfit in order to exact a bribe for their release, while young, good-looking lads, for children are normally quite tall, 
among the Batavians, were dragged off to gratify their lust. This caused bitter resentment, and the ringleaders of revolt got together and succeeded in inducing their countrymen to refuse service. End quote. So, to summarize our story so far, the German armies have declared Vitellius emperor, the African armies have done the same for Vespasian, who's on his way to Rome. The honor of the Batavians has been besmirched when Galba, who by now is dead by stabbing, dismissed them. Troops that include eight Batavian units are on their way for the second time to Rome, this time to face Vespasian. Vitellius, the emperor, in between mouthfuls, has demanded more German troops from Flaccus, the now commander of the German armies. And to this, the Batavian population is getting really pissed off. But the revolt cannot start without the dominant crowned man with the one eye, holding a big stabby sword over a table whom we introduced at the beginning of this episode, Claudius Civilis. May as well let Tacitus introduce him. Quote, By far the most prominent of the Batavians were Julius Civilis and Claudius Paulus. Okay, wait a second. Weren't we just talking about Claudius Civilis and now we've got a Julius Civilis and a Claudius Paulus? What gives? Well, the man in the scene that we introduced at the start the actual leader of the Batavian Rebellion, his name was really Julius Civilis. However, due to a mistranslation of Tacitus's work centuries later, he is often referred to as Claudius Civilis. We've got to remember that so often in history, these stories which we learn have been translated, and often mistranslated, between various scholarly languages. Even worse, In the days before things like podcasts and computers, these stories were written by hand, on parchments, by monks, working by candlelight. What happens when parchments get old? They degrade. So what do you need to do? Copy the entire thing word for word, by hand. And even worse, these were the days before coffee had even become a thing which people drank. As you might imagine, this left a lot of room for error. So unfortunately for Julius Civilis, his name got mishmashed with his brothers, and he became known as Claudius Civilis. We're going to stick with that one, because that's the one that history remembers. In general, however, we will just be referring to him as Civilis, because it sounds like Civilis. Okay, on with the quote. By far the most prominent of the Batavians were Julius Civilis and Claudius Paulus, who were of royal descent. Fonta- I have no idea how to say this guy's name. Fontaus Capito? Sounds good. Executed Paulus on a trumped-up charge of rebellion, while Civilis was put in irons and sent to Nero. Although acquitted by Galba, he found himself once more in danger under Vitellius, whose army clamoured for his head. This was why he hated Rome and hoped for great things from our difficulties. But Civilis was unusually intelligent for a native and passed himself off as a second Sertorius or Hannibal, whose facial disfigurement he shared. Open rebellion involved the risk 
of being attacked as an enemy of Rome, so he posed as a friend and supporter of Vespasian. End quote. The details are, through the lens of 2,000 years and few sources, really foggy on why Civilis and his brother Claudius Paulus were arrested back when Nero was still emperor. Supposedly, he was just one recalcitrant and defiant bastard. Tacitus fairly glosses over the execution of his brother. I also didn't know the brothers, but it's a fair assumption that if they were arrested together, likely it was for doing something that they had conspired to together. So Claudius Civilis can't have been too stoked about his brother being murdered. Tacitus puts it straight out there that his cause of rebellion is revenge and self-preservation. Civilis's family had been kings of his people prior to Roman domination, apparently. So the temptation for conclusion is that this was a rebellion fed by a latent desire for self-determination, an unhappy population being exploited for military service, and a pissed-off prince looking for revenge. If so, he would have to revolt. And that revolt begins in a sacred grove with a secret banquet. We're going to do something a little bit weird and jarring here, and actually skip the banquet scene for now. That scene which immortalizes the very beginning of the rebellion. This is just to get some of the main succeeding points out of the way, because this episode is not actually about the Batavian revolt. Surprise! It's actually about the use of its imaging as mythology to fortify the Dutch revolt in the 15 and 1600s, and about the controversies that arose around that imaging during the Golden Age, and which involved one of the most influential and famous people to ever come out of the Netherlands. The image that matters focuses on that banquet moment of the rebellion's origin, the scene described in the beginning, when Claudius and the other leaders of the Batavi cross swords, in the original sense, and bind each other to the oath of unburdening themselves of Roman oppression. Following the banquet, Civilis had the fellow Batavian leaders behind him, and bonded by their oath to each other. The Batavians then rose up against the Romans. There is initial success. Civilis gains the alliance of the other tribes of the lowlands, the Cananophates and the Frisians. Tacitus tells us that, in a coordinated operation, they, quote, swooped down on two Roman cohorts in their nearby quarters and simultaneously overran them from the North Sea. The garrison had not expected the attack, nor indeed would it have been strong enough to hold out if it had, so the posts were captured and sacked. Then the enemy fell upon the Roman supply contractors and merchants who were scattered over the countryside with no thought of war. The marauders were also on the point of destroying the frontier forts, but these were set on fire by the cohort prefects because they could not be defended. The headquarters of the various units and such troops as they could muster rallied to the upper parts of the island under a senior centurion called Aquilius. But this was an army on paper only, lacking real strength. It could hardly be otherwise, for Vitellius had withdrawn the bulk of the cohort's effectives and saddled with arms a bunch of loafers from the nearest Nervian and German districts. 
end quote. Civilis's timing was perfect. As far as exploding the chaos of the Roman establishment went, Vitellius was far too consumed with the approaching Vespasian to put much thought into the Batavian revolt. Flaccus, who was calling the shots in the Rhine region on behalf of Vitellius, and to whom Tacitus gives not one skerrick of credit for anything much, was left to deal with the increasing tensions. Although the implication is that Flaccus was so useless as to not send reinforcements to what is now modern-day Nijmegen, he did also mention a senior centurion named Aquilius. Interestingly, an archaeological find near Nijmegen found a small silver disc with the man's full name and army designation. He was Gaius Aquilius Proculus, belonging to the Augusta Legion, not stationed normally in Germany. Jonah Lendering suggests that the evidence of this man's existence shows that Flaccus did send reinforcements, contrary to Tacitus's report, as a senior centurion would not have been present otherwise. This implies further that Flaccus was very aware of the tensions amongst the lowlanders, and so the revolt, when it began, cannot have been as much of a surprise as Tacitus puts it. Anywho, when the Frisians and the Canny Cananophates attacked by surprise, although it may not have been that much of a surprise, it led to several pitched battles, and a naval one. The rebels had quick success, with many of the Roman soldiers actually being fellow lowlanders or Germanic people not so far removed from themselves, who deserted to the Batavian side. Of the naval battle, Tacitus says, quote, The naval force was equally disloyal. Some of the rowers were Batavians, and they feigned incompetence in order to hinder the sailors and marines in the performance of their duties. Then they began to resist, and tried to steer the ships towards the enemy-held bank, finally murdering the helmsmen and centurions who refused to throw in their lot with them. In the end, the whole fleet of 24 ships either deserted or was captured. End quote. For the Batavians, things were going great. According to Tacitus, quote, This success earned the rebels immediate prestige and provided a useful basis for future action. They had obtained the arms and ships they needed and were acclaimed as liberators, as the news spread like wildfire throughout the German and Gallic provinces. End quote. Civilis made various entreaties to the people of these provinces, enticing many of them to join what was, terrifyingly for a Rome already engaged in a civil war between Vitellius and Vespasian, becoming a general Germanic revolt. A tribe of people known as the Tungrians, who inhabited what is today in the east of Belgium, around a town still carrying their name actually, Tongeren, also deserted the Romans and joined Civilis and the Lowlanders. This was bad for Flaccus, because it meant that the establishment could no longer trust auxiliary troops who came from anywhere in the region. Up until now, the Romans had been using just auxiliary forces. But it is here that Flaccus decided to send in two Roman legions, the 5th and the 15th, bearing their imperial standards. Civilis employed what has become known as a fairly widely used tactic amongst the quote-unquote barbarians that Rome often fought. 
Tacitus tells us that Civilis, quote, caused his mothers and sisters, accompanied by the wives and young children of all his men, to take up their station in the rear as a spur to victory or a reproach to the routed. Then the battle chant of the warriors and the shrill wailing of the women rang out over the host, evoking in response only a feeble cheer from the legions and auxiliary units. The Roman left front was soon exposed by the defection of the Batavian cavalry regiment, which immediately turned about to face us. But in this frightening situation, the legionaries kept their arms and ranks intact. The Eubian and the Treveran auxiliaries disgraced themselves by stampeding over the countryside in wild flight. End quote. So Civilis won this battle, defeating two Roman legions. And now he received the support of Vespasian, who would soon win the civil war against the glutton Vitellius and begin the Flavian dynasty, which would rule Rome for 27 years. Vespasian himself would rule as emperor for 10 of them. The Batavians were sitting pretty. They had defeated a Roman army of some 6,500 men, expelled Roman forces from their lands, enticed their neighbours into pursuing autonomy of their own, and secured the support of the man who would soon become emperor. Civilis was as good as king. But it wasn't enough. In a story sense, it seems like he just had to bite off more than he could chew. He got greedy. In the second half of this episode, we will move away from ancient Rome and into the 17th century of the brand new Dutch Republic. We'll be looking at people who sit on top of the world. Perhaps it's a little too romantic, but for the wealthy elite of that later era, who were spooning up the story of Civilis and the Batavian Revolt so as to enhance the legitimacy of their hard-earned national independence, perhaps they should have looked more at how Civilis ended up losing his revolt, rather than how and why he began it in the first place. Because he then laid siege to Xanten, a major Roman outpost and base of two Roman legions. As Lendering puts it, quote, No emperor could leave an attack on this symbol of Roman power unpunished. End quote. But the civil war was raging. There wasn't one solid emperor, not just yet. Any and every bloke who felt to call himself emperor still would not be able to afford caring about the Batavians laying siege to Xanten. However, during the siege, Vespasian won the civil war. Erroneously, so history would tell us, Civilis allowed the siege to continue, perhaps a little smitten with himself and by his success up until now. Vespasian had no choice but to come down heavily on the Batavians, which he could now do, given that he no longer had to commit resources to, well, the civil war. In the end, when faced with the full might of Roman power, the Batavians were, of course, forced to submit. A bridge was built over a river that Tacitus called the Nabalia. Interestingly, this is the only recording of that name in any book or document or record ever. So nobody knows where it is. But peace negotiations were held there. 
the Batavians and their fellow lowlanders were incorporated back into the Roman mafia fold, with much the same conditions as prior to the revolt. It is unclear whether, had they not laid siege to Xanten, Vespasian would have granted them the conditions which they trusted that he would. Tacitus mentions that the Roman captain at the peace negotiations made a speech. But then it all finishes there. We don't know what the speech is. We also don't know what happened to Civilis. That's right. As far as storytelling goes, this ending sucks. But there you have it. If you found yourself drifting in and out of that a bit, and you want a summary, a nice, succinct summary of the Batavian Revolt, they rebelled, they fought, they won a bit, and then they lost. The end. But it's not really the end. Because now that we know what happened to Civilis and the Batavian Revolt, let's get onto this whole thing about how they were mythologized and particularly how their image was used. Like we mentioned earlier, the very beginning of the revolt was a banquet that Civilis held, prior to gaining the alliances of the Canni Cananifates and the Frisians. It was the night that the other Batavian leaders agreed to bend their knees to him as the rightful king and leader of the revolt to cast off Roman oppression. Tacitus describes it, quote, Civilis invited the nobles and the most enterprising commoners to a sacred grove, ostensibly for a banquet. When he saw that darkness and merriment had inflamed their hearts, he addressed them. Starting with a reference to the glory and renown of their nation, he went on to catalogue the wrongs, the depredations, and all the other woes of slavery. The alliance, he said, was no longer observed on the old terms. They were treated as chattels. How long would they have to wait for the arrival of the governor, who, despite his burdensome and overbearing suite, did exercise real control? The Batavians were at the mercy of prefects and centurions, who, when glutted with spoil and blood, were replaced by others looking for fresh pockets to pick and new labels for plunder. They were faced with a levy which parted children from parents and brothers from brothers, apparently forever. End quote. The first mention of the Batavians in a sort of post-Renaissance sense that we could find is by the Pope in 1457. But it's irrelevant. It was with the growth of humanism in the Netherlands that learned scholars were reading Tacitus. It was Aurelius, the mate of Erasmus, who in the 1500s first really went to town on the story of the Batavians as an origin story of he and his contemporary citizens. He pursued locating where, exactly, they had geographically lived, and certainly got it all wrong. He put them far more towards the west, where the Canni Cananifates would more likely have lived. Leiden was the scholarly epicentre of Dutch culture, and it may have not just been coincidence that he claimed to have found some castles around there. There weren't any castles. Well, not Batavian ones. Anyway. Of Aurelius's work, historian Curran Tillmans writes that he totally ignores Tacitus's depictions of the savage, if noble, Germans. And, quote, In his description of the morals and manners of the Batavians, he depicts a wholly Arcadian society, which in every respect could be an example to the Dutch of his own times. Thus Aurelius explained to his Dutch readers 
that the Batavians wore very elegant clothes, that their wives even wore very tight, low-necked dresses, but this did not in the least impede high morals and strict monogamy. Oh, oh, Aurelius complains, how far away from this are we nowadays? He describes the well-known menu of the Batavians, beer, butter, cheese, and eggs, the marriage ceremonies and the education of the children, their democracy and military politics, virtue, gallantry, civic solidarity, and public spirit are the key terms of this Batavian Arcadia. End quote. In 1568, one year off being exactly 1,500 years after the Batavian Revolt, the Dutch nobles began a Calvinist-driven rebellion of their own against the imperialism of Spain and the oppression of the Spanish Inquisitions. In 1579, the leaders of the northern provinces of the Netherlands signed the Union of Utrecht effectively proclaiming the independent republic of the seven united provinces. The formation of a Dutch national identity was very handy during a time of war which, in the first half at least, saw Spanish troops marauding across the countryside and many Dutch towns being put to the torch or laid siege to with devastating consequences. Their rebellion was, whether intentionally or not, moving them from the imperial feudalism of the past into the mercantile republicanism of the future. For so long they had been ruled by the Counts of Holland, Dukes of Burgundy and King of Spain, with those titles being fluid and not mutually exclusive to different people. Tillmans tells us about why the Batavian myth mattered so much during this time, and how it supplanted earlier origin myth archetypes that had come before it. Quote, in Dutch historiography we find, as in the medieval historiography of many other nations, the Trojan myth of princely descent. This myth assumed that the Counts of Holland descended from Aeneas, son of King Priam. The Batavian myth, she goes on, did not apply to the prince, but to the Dutch people as a whole and in this way became a historical point of orientation for every Dutch citizen. This is one of the most essential innovations of the humanist historiography of Aurelius. End quote. The Batavian myth represented the movement of a people against a tyrant, rather than of a legitimate origin of princely right. Never mind that Civilis was, well, a prince. Hugo Grotius, today known as Hugo de Groot, who pretty much wrote the basis for international law and was a major and influential jurist during the incredibly transformative period of the 16th into the 17th centuries for the Netherlands, also expounded the Batavians as the ancestral forebears of this terrific and definitely legitimate country. In fact, you can list off a reel of major cultural and political movers and shakers of this burgeoning republic who relied on the story of the Batavians to legitimize what they were doing. The first major image of the banquet, during which Civilis and the rebel leaders made their oath, is from Otto van Veen. He called it the Conspiracy of Claudius Civilis, which the scene has been thereafter generally known as. As usual, we have plenty of show notes including these images 
up on our website, stuffwhatyoutellme.com. Simon Schummer, who has done incredible work over the last 30 or 40 years on the intertwining of Dutch culture, society, economics, and political thinking in the Golden Age, says of Van Veen's work that, quote, throughout the Batavians dress in a combination of high medieval costume and biblico-classical garb adapted by the Renaissance for history painting, exhibit qualities of bravery, fortitude, vigor, and magnanimity. End quote. Schama argues that 16th and 17th century written depictions of Batavians had to incorporate, quote, certain obligatory features if they were to carry conviction as proto-national texts, end quote. These obligatory features were humanist scholarship, lavish referencing to Tacitus, Pliny, and other classical sources, and definitive nomenclature that distinguished the Batavians from the other Germanic tribes, the Gauls, the Belgae, and the Frisians. The canny Canaanifates, that was alright. We can assume that these obligations applied also to the visual depictions of the Batavians at the same time. The point is that the self-reinforcing narrative that they were building demanded defined borders on this narrative that reflected the ideals and geopolitical legitimacy of the United Provinces. Pese Hoft, an esteemed historian, poet, and playwright of this time, composed a poem in which he concocted a fictional proto-Batavian ancestor, Beto, to whom he directs this passage, quote, There you shall found an able people to last throughout the centuries. Better vows should be their name, Hollanders thereafter, with their neighbours, which shall in both peace and in war and in everything else be outstanding. End quote. Issues inherent in this false equivalency have, of course, been summarised better by Simon Schummer than we could. Bear in mind, though, with Schummer, that when he opens the fridge of his vocabulary, he will always go for the most luxurious items, like the caviar, rather than just grabbing a ham and cheese sandwich that would do just as good a job. Quote, This extended exercise in verisimilitude was not without snags. Both the paganism of the Batavians and their service with Roman legions, recorded in all the major Latin histories, sat awkwardly with this group portrait of an indomitable and pious folk. The latter problem was dealt with by having them presented as among the earliest converts of the Christian evangel, and their military service for Rome was explained as the voluntary action of a free ally, not the obligation of a subjugated people, end quote. In 1648, though, just as Hoft had said in his poem, the Netherlands was definitely outstanding. It was, in that year, officially proclaimed an independent republic after 80 years of a struggle that spanned the globe against the dwindling Spanish Empire. It was at the height of its powers, with a trade empire that included a virtual monopoly on Asian spices and luxury goods, as well as encroachments on the New World, with all its potential for profit in sugar and slavery. Amsterdam city government, 
run by an oligarchy of the wealthiest men in the capital of this insane bastion of prosperity, celebrated the victory over Spain and the Treaty of Westphalia that made it official by deciding to do something epic. They built a massive town hall. Literally, it was the largest secular building ever built in Europe at the time. It was resplendent in neoclassical carvings and iconography. Basically, it was these ridiculously rich merchants saying to the world, look how bloody rich, educated, and far come we are from the trappings of the redundant monarchism of the past. Have a look at our website at some of the paintings we've put up of the town hall in its heyday, when it still had a bustling market in front of it and a canal running behind it. If you've ever been to Amsterdam personally, there's a chance that you've seen the town hall, as it is still the centerpiece of the central square, the heart of the old city. Today, this monumental statement of Republican pride and global mercantilism is called the Royal Palace. 150 years after its construction, the French took over the Netherlands, and Napoleon made his younger brother, Louis, the first king of Holland. Louis looked at the town hall of Amsterdam and presumably said in a presumably very French accent, I want to live there. The building has remained the palace to this day. I suppose the irony of this is also a testament to how sick a building it is. So having built this giant symbol of their own awesomeness, all that was left was to make the interiors as impressive as the exterior. Amsterdam was a thriving center for the visual arts, with painters operating huge studios that were basically factories pumping out images and egos. These prosperous but Calvinist Dutch citizens wanted to demonstrate that they were simple, God-fearing folk who used their wealth in the right ways. But they also obviously wanted their amazing prosperity and success to be immortalized in some way. So they had them put down on canvas. The demand for this was met by scores of painters who were all too happy to show that you were a good, God-fearing citizen as long as you paid them appropriately. Actually failed to show appropriate tribute to the painter after they'd done the scene and they might amend it to make you either sit right at the back of the scene or to be shown as a drunk or painted a little bit too fat for your own liking. In 1659, an artist named Halvert Flink was commissioned by the Burgermeisters of the town to create 12 huge paintings for the interior of the town hall. Flink had been an apprentice to, for instance, Rembrandt around 1634 for one year at the workshop of Hendrik Eulenburg. After Rembrandt had left it to found his own studio, Flink had taken over. He was an amazing painter in his own right, but most important to his success, it has been argued, was his ability to schmooze the right people and to move in the correct circles to get commissions. He married the daughter of one of the directors of the Dutch East India Company, the biggest company of all time, and soon was busily painting patrician families from all over the country. He knew exactly who these nouveau rich people were, and exactly how they wanted to see themselves. So he was definitely the best person to be entrusted with the task of decorating their new giant temple to themselves, the Town Hall of Amsterdam. And what did they want? 
Well, they wanted the 12 canvases to be of various scenes from antiquity, including a sequence showing the Batavian rebellion against Roman oppression. The idea of rebellion was popular. Even though these establishment men would have abhorred any such thing occurring in reality to them at that moment, it was rebellion that their kin had undertaken 80 years before against the Spanish and which they, three generations later, were reaping the rewards of. For sure, Flink was the man for this job. However, he never got a chance to prove it, because he died. Yep, in 1660. He managed to complete preliminary sketches of the Batavian scenes, also on the website, but no more than that. You'll see that they look true to his previous form. Also, German artist Jürgen Olfens later completed it, and it shows noble men giving each other solemn and nation-founding handshakes with lots of shiny armor and a fair few feathers and plumes. With a track record and being a man who knew what his patrons wanted, there is little doubt that Flink would have depicted the Batavians as worthy ancestors to those whose eyes would gaze self-admiringly upon them, up on the walls of their splendiferous city hall. Now with no artists to finish the job, the Burkhamesers were forced to find another solution. They divided it up and gave out various of the scenes for various artists to do. Few artists were as good as Flink. That's true. He really was at the top of his field. But the man who had trained him years before was still alive. And this man, this man was probably the best of them all. This man was Rembrandt van Rijn. His career had been so meteoric that he had enjoyed the kind of wealth and fame that one can only really imagine being possible for an artist in the Dutch Republic of the 17th century. When it came to Dutch art, Rembrandt van Rijn had rewritten the rules and changed the game. But he had by now begun his decline. Several years earlier, he had gone into heavy debt with low returns for the paintings he produced. He had been forced to sell his house and all his possessions, including artwork to try and repay some of the debt. In fact, so disgraceful was Rembrandt's fall that the Amsterdam Artists Guild brought in a new rule stipulating that any artist who had liquidated their paintings as he had just done was to be banned from ever trading art in Amsterdam again. Rembrandt got around this by making his wife and son start an art dealership and they officially employed Rembrandt to work for them. So Rembrandt was still kicking, but he really needed a big job. And when the opportunity arose for him to do the Batavian banquet scene, it would have likely come as quite a relief. However, this man was not the adhering conventionalist that Flink had been. He was perhaps the most diverse and skilled painter of his day, and he had not gotten that way without tremendous hard work often breaking the rules of what was and what was not expected of art. Popular wisdom often points to his incredibly true-to-life self-portraits that he produced throughout his life, and in which he does not hide the blemishes and facial discrepancies of, for instance, old age, but instead uses his art to explore the multitude of depths, both beautiful and ugly, that make up our visual realities. He has been compared with, or at least set next to, 
Caravaggio, although to a fair bit of criticism. Rembrandt is unlikely to have ever seen a real Caravaggio, who died when Rembrandt was only four years old. The Netherlands, however, were awash with copies of the work by the renegade Italian master, and it was common for Dutch art students to spend years training in Italy and bringing that influence home. Rembrandt himself never left the Netherlands. But he didn't need to. Guy was Rembrandt. So there was little to no direct relationship between the two artists, Rembrandt and Caravaggio, nor of much influence of the latter on the former. However, they can be compared, even if these comparable characteristics are mistakes of coincidence. As art reviewer and writer Andrew O'Hagan put it, quote, each became a master of light and shade, a genius at catching the moral moment, the psychological essence, and each was addicted to the example of nature, using ordinary people as models, and getting away from the idealized portraits of saints that were the hallmark. End quote. So the temptation is to put Rembrandt as a badass, sword-wielding, doesn't-give-a-stuff-about-you, and you can all go and get stuffed kind of guy, like old Caravaggio. But he wasn't. Just similarly awesome at wielding a paintbrush. Rembrandt more likely craved the acceptance of the upper-class elite, who, though he could count some amongst his friends and continued patrons, had generally begun to shun him more as his fortunes dwindled. Simon Schummer points out, his common use of a gold chain that drapes over his shoulder in many self-portraits, the chain being a symbol of honour, often bestowed upon someone for worthy deeds, actions, or service to their community. Perhaps Rembrandt felt that he deserved and would one day be given one in dedication to his achievements. It never happened. He never got a chain. Just painted himself in one all the time. Apparently, though, Rembrandt was also a bit of a prick. Rembrandt historian Gary Schwartz used over 500 documents, including those recording the court proceedings of his bankruptcy and other charges, to write a comprehensive book on Rembrandt in 1984. He said that, quote, What emerges is an unpleasant character, a cantankerous man who, at least on one occasion, showed extraordinary cruelty, end quote. This argument is fairly solid, considering, for example, that during the eventually fatal illness of his first wife, Rembrandt began an affair with his maid, Gertje Derricks. After his wife's death, he refused to marry Gertje, which he'd promised to do. A lengthy court case resulted, and for breaking promise, he was ordered by the court to pay her 200 guilders a year. To avoid this, he worked to spread rumours about her, rumours crazy enough to actually have her committed to a poorhouse slash asylum for 12 years. She had to endure five years of forced labour. So though Rembrandt was an artistic genius, let's not forget that he was an absolute bastard, and those close to him, particularly the women in his life, would have had to endure the effects of that as he made his meteoric rise and took his plummeting fall. What Rembrandt produced by June 1662 was the biggest painting he had ever done, easily 5 metres wide and over 6 metres tall. It was put in its appointed space in the city hall. Rembrandt's depiction of the banquet scene is set in a large vaulted hall, 
Most of the canvas is fairly unused space. It depicts the pillars and the stairs of the hall. The eye is automatically drawn to the table scene right in the middle. And as for the Batavians sitting there, gathered at this table, some holding their swords against Civiluses in oath, well, it is exactly the depiction that we gave you at the start of this episode. It's dark and dusty. The figures are unkempt and barbaric looking. Claudius Civilis is crowned and missing an eye, whilst still having one that stares intently at you as you look at him. His sword is held aloft, and the other leaders of the coming rebellion cross theirs upon it. They have attended, upon his request, this banquet to plot and swear oaths upon the determination to rally the canny Canaanophates and Frisians and attack Roman positions and troops in response to the Roman exploitation of Batavian military conscription. When you first look at this image, your initial reaction might well be something like, what is happening? This is a more likely reaction, actually, than the usual, what image does this painting contain, or even, who are these people? Rembrandt was an absolute master in his ability to capture a moment within an action. So many of his paintings, especially of groups, draw the viewer in as they seek to understand what action or event they are merely getting a tiny glimpse into, a freeze frame from which they must infer all the context, characters, emotions, and circumstances that have led to what is happening. For example, to the right of the scene, there is a lecherous-looking bald dude. By the expression on his face, it seems as, if not more likely, that he is laughing at some dirty joke told in his ear at that moment, rather than reacting to the momentous and solemn vow that is being summoned. Life is complicated, and what's happening could be any number of different things at any given moment. There is no reason to expect anything different from Rembrandt when he shows us particular of these moments. These Batavians are very human, they are very active, And something big is about to go down. However, there is no way that the look of Rembrandt's active human Batavians comported to the modern 17th century Dutch ideas of their noble forebears. Up until now, the only thing in any representation to show the fringe-dwelling barbarism of the rebels was that this was supposed to be set in a sacred grove. That was a very important part of the legend. Rembrandt, however, puts them in a hole, but that is as far as the civility goes. By their leering, drunken-looking expressions and conspiratorial temperaments, they are not that pleasant to look upon. There is little comfort there. This is enhanced by the thick, broad brushstrokes that Rembrandt used. If you take any time looking at Dutch art of this era, There is such a variety, but you will find a lot of paintings of very, very realistic and very clean-looking bowls of fruit and, and vases. This could not be more opposite or far removed from those ideals. This hazy, impressionistic feel really reminds you that these people are those on the fringes of the established norms. This painting is thick and it is dirty, 
And that also demands that the viewer is pulled into it, but is somewhat obliged to complete the image themselves. By showing Civilis's deformity, although true to Tacitus, Rembrandt was breaking Renaissance and Baroque conventions regarding depictions of characters from antiquity, which usually only saw physical aberrations depicted if they carried symbolic biblical significance. There's a bunch of stuff about deformities of fingers having something to do with a saint, but that was a bit too boring and weird for us to want to get too far into. Another point of consternation in how the Batavians looked was also the centre of a social and political debate, believe it or not, going on in Dutch society at the time. The question was whether long hair was saintly enough, or just too rock and roll. Rembrandt, as you've probably guessed, painted Civilis very rock and roll. The short hair brigade wouldn't have liked this, no, not one bit. For all these reasons, the broken conventions that this painting displayed would have irked many within the establishment, and no less the thought of it hanging on the walls within this tribute of their own self-aggrandizement. So why did he do this? Of course, like with all art, a search for deeper levels of understanding is to find meaning where perhaps there is none. On the discomforting nature of the image, this could just be because it was painted to be viewed from far below, and we look at it generally today from straight in front. But stuff that, let's find some meaning. The deep and meaningful explanation is that he was not only doing what he had always done, breaking convention to show coexistence of both ugliness and beauty within moments, but also perhaps trying to cut the Amsterdam Burgemeesters down a few pegs, or at least give them a warning. This may have been out of contempt for a group who he feels didn't accept him as much as he would have deserved, but it has been argued that Rembrandt saw the deplorability within the insane wealth of the nation in which he lived. He saw that it had gone soft, and it was stuffed if it ever came under attack. And he wanted to show the roughness of the Batavians' freedom, underscore essences of the national character that may have been forgotten within all this wealth. There is a light emanating out from the center of the table, and it has been argued that this represents the fire of a forge, as if the swords that they are holding, their oaths, and the nation are all being created at once. This rawness, perhaps Rembrandt was saying, is something that the modern republic would do well to attend and honour once more. He was saying, our civility is not what matters, our freedom is. Civilis had not quit while he was ahead in the Batavian revolt, and instead sealed the doom of his rebellion by laying siege to Xanten. The Amsterdam Burgemeesters, fueled by hypercapitalism, might find themselves also biting off more than they could chew. Perhaps Rembrandt was trying to remind everyone of their truly most humble and non-classical origins. Perhaps also, he thought that everybody would get this. That the Calvinist humility of the Burgemeesters, this supposed Calvinist humility, would make them nod their heads in an appreciative understanding of what Rembrandt had done with this now iconic image. But what is for sure 
is that the Burkemasters hated it. It hung in the town hall for about two months, and by September 1662, when a big wig from Cologne came to visit, it was gone. Apparently he was ordered to change it, but he didn't, which suggests that there was definitely an element of rebellion to his actions, or at least a determined stubbornness to stick by his work. Rembrandt was forced to cut up this huge piece, so as to try and sell the central table scene as its own painting. He chopped off a full three quarters of the work, resulting in the image we know today. It hangs in Stockholm. Nobody knows if Rembrandt got paid in the end for his work, but it's likely that he wasn't, because two months later, he had to sell the grave of his beloved dead wife Saskia to help manage his debts. So the commission from the town hall would not be the big opportunity for his late career spike. Although, he would get one more chance to do a painting for the Draper's Guild this time, but this would also not recover his lost prestige. The next seven years saw him outlive his second wife and son, and eventually die alone and broke, before being buried in a grave that had no gravestone, because nobody was there to pay for one. Poor old Rembrandt. Oh, but he was a prick. Gotta remember that. Oh well, at least everybody knows his name and his legacy has only increased over time. Keeping in mind his probable failings at general human decency, he was undoubtedly a genius, who got to his level in his field because he was willing to risk and rebel when he saw a path to his own growth emerge as a result of doing so. In 1672, the wretched excesses of the Netherlands would cause its downfall, as perhaps Rembrandt intended to show, if that is what he intended to show. The country had been making more money than the rest of Europe combined, so much of the rest of Europe got really jelly. And the French, the British, believe it or not, the Swedes, and some German states, Cologne and Munster, all combined for a land and sea assault on the impertinent little republic. The French, invading from the south, managed to get troops as far north as Utrecht. They would be stopped and they would be pushed back once the highest nobleman in the country, who was Willem van Oranje, and... I'm sure some of you out there have realized what a creative name for a Dutch prince, Willem. He later became King William III of Britain and one of the most hated figures in Irish history, King Billy. He took over control of the land forces of the Netherlands against the French. But it took until 1674 until the Netherlands managed to reach a treaty with its combatant neighbors. Although the country managed to hold on to its freedom and would still control a decent trade empire for another two and a half centuries, it was no longer in the ascent. The Republican merchants were held to blame for having put all their stock in their merchant navy at the expense of the army, which had been neglected, allowing the French to rampage through the lowlands, terrifying the population. The art market also declined and many Dutch artists took themselves and their expertise elsewhere, especially to London, which was in the ascent. So what do we take from all this? Well, rebellion in general can serve many purposes, and they don't have to be of immediate impact. 
The Batavian revolt did stir the Roman pot, and although ultimately not succeeding for themselves, their plight gave weight to ideas of self-rule and belonging to their later counterparts in the 15 and 1600s, who then used these ideas successfully in their own rebellion against the Spanish. Rembrandt, meanwhile, who was never accepted to the heights of the success in the way that he thought he deserved, used the false equivalency between these two people and rebelliously held a mirror up to the Burkhamesas of Amsterdam. Whilst they were celebrating the victory over the Spanish and the rebellion of their forefathers, they could not tolerate defiance of their own ideas of themselves, even in something as innocuous, you might say, as a painting. Where each rebellion failed was that the Batavians, the money-hungry Dutch elite of the 17th century, and Rembrandt all went a bit too far. The experience of the Batavians, who doomed their revolt and sacrificed their successes by greedily laying siege to Xanten and forcing Rome's hand, was not heeded by the Dutch burghers of the 17th century. Their kin had miraculously forged and maintained the most progressive, wealthy and modern society the world had ever seen. But they doomed it by their own greed and maniacal pursuit of profit. Rembrandt, defiant of convention in how he chose to portray the banquet, must have known that the Burkhamesas would not approve. He could have been more subtle, not so risque in communicating whatever he was trying to communicate in the conspiracy of Claudius Civilis. He could have been more adherent to what he knew the wishes of those paying him money would have been, money that he so desperately needed to live. So in short, the Batavians, the Dutch Burkhamesas, Rembrandt, they could have all just done with sitting around a fire, listening to Kenny Rogers' croon. You gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. Damn, that's a good song. Thanks for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. Just a quick reminder, we are now part of the RecordedHistory.net podcast network. Check them out. It does mean that we get a new back end. We get to look at stuff on our website. We get to look at a little bit of statistics from our listeners. And we can see where you're from. That's creepy. But we've noticed we've got some avid listeners in some pretty out there places. So we want to shout out to whoever's listening in Mountain View, California. We love you. Claremore, Oklahoma. What's going on in Claremore? La Paz, Bolivia. Hola. Porto, Portugal. Obrigado. And uh, lastly, in McLaren Vale, South Australia. Good on you, mate. If you are from any of these places that we've just mentioned, hit us up. Let us know. Either on Twitter, at the Stuff You Team. We're also on Facebook, on Instagram as well. But the best way to get in touch with us, of course, is good old-fashioned email. Stand up at stuffwhatyoutellme.com. If you're from these places and you contact us, we will send you a nice little gift, a token of our appreciation, a little bit of swag. 
Excuses also for the six-week break in between episodes. Truth is, we went on holiday. Probably shouldn't have, but stuff it. We love you all. Thanks for listening. Keep on doing so. Rock and roll and stick it to the man. This has been a production by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani.